ramping up the pressure to settle the policing issue in Surrey. Surrey City Council says it has received a rather threatening letter, pressuring letter. We're going to find out from Solicitor General Mike Farnworth to asking council to basically set a date and vote. Make a decision about whether to keep the RCMP or go ahead with the transition to the Surrey Police Service. Harry Baines is a city councillor with Surrey, and he joins us this afternoon. Hi, Harry. Hi, Robin. Thank you for having me. Yeah, do you feel pressure to make a decision? No. Uh, the, the letter we've received from the Solicitor General, I mean, it's, it's, it's asking us to hurry up and make a decision. And the problem I have with that is, is we made a decision in December, and it's been five and a half, six months we just heard back from the minister now. We just received the NDA. I received it on Tuesday, and, and the minister was well aware that we were all going to be at the FCM conference in Toronto. We landed on Monday. I signed it on Tuesday, and it was it was out to the province right away. So a letter like this, I mean, when you take five and a half months and we've had the NDA for a week, it, it seems a bit dis, uh, disingenuous. Is it time, though, to rip off the Band-Aid and set a date and have a vote? I think it's important that we move forward. Um, I think it's important that we make a decision. I mean, in fact, I feel that we've already made a decision. We've, we've received some new information, and obviously we're going to look at that. I think it's important. We, we received, A lot of the report that we were originally provided with in April was redacted. I've now received the unredacted portions. I'm in process of reviewing those, and I'll, I'll definitely be considering all the information that's in there. But, you know, as I'm going through the report and I'm going through the unredacted portions, I'm not seeing anything that's changing my mind. In fact, in fact, it's only furthering my decision, my original decision, to stay with the RCMP. So you want to stay with the RCMP? Well, it's not that I want to. I think it's the right decision thus far. Based on everything that I've seen, um, I'm concerned as to how the decision to move to the SPS was, was made in the first instance. Um, we, we, we see now that we've received a report from the Solicitor General that outlined, it took five and a half months to prepare this report uh, after receiving input from the city, after receiving input from the Surrey Police Service, after receiving input from the RCMP. Five and a half months to, for the Solicitor General to create a uh, report which discusses his analysis for his decision as to why he feels the RCMP isn't the right decision. And that's fair. I understand that. But where's the document from 2019? It took four months, from my understanding, for the Solicitor General at the time to make his decision to retain the RC, to move towards the SPS. Where's that analytical document so that we can understand why he feels the SPS is the right decision? And I do intend on writing to him but it, to, to ask for that document. But it comes down to the fact that they can't recruit RCMP members across the province and they don't want you to take RCMP members away. I think every police service is having a difficult time uh, recruiting. I think that's a national problem. I don't think that that is solely limited to the Surrey RCMP now. The SPS was able to recruit a number of, of officers, but what did they do? Where did they get them from? They pulled them from Delta. They pulled them from Richmond. They pulled them from other municipalities. And and the problem I have with that is, is where was the Solicitor General at that time to make the decision that, yes, if you wish to move forward with the Surrey Police Service, go ahead, but you're not pulling from the other police jurisdictions. That didn't happen until well after when, when there was an outcry from mayors right across the region. But Harry, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, because this is going to cost taxpayers. It is. And it's unfortunate that we've come down this road. Uh, but we, as the elected leaders of the city, have to take the right steps at this point to right the ship. It's not going to be an emotional decision. There's, there's no... The only concern I have here is for the citizens of Surrey. We need safe and effective policing in the city. And if you read the Director of Police Services report, um, he actually states the decision in 2018 or 2019 to go to the SPS was never based on an inability by the RCMP to provide safe and effective policing in the city. 
Are there you, was no public. There was no public safety concerns. Are you going to be able to get unity on council? I hope so. I hope so, but I don't know if we will. Um, I don't think you will. I don't think you will. There's a lot of strong will. opinions. Yeah, there's a lot of strong opinions. It's it's a it's a it's an issue that a lot of people have different opinions on, and I welcome that. That's what council is for. We're supposed to have these discussions. We're supposed to openly discuss these. We're supposed to talk to the public, and with this non-disclosure agreement, unfortunately, we're muzzled. We can no longer talk about it. We can no longer give our reasoning for the decisions that we're making. And I, have, I do have an issue with that. Do you think, though, the, the province offering you $150 million to ease the transition is, is going to trigger the vote or, or, or vote in, in favour of the Surrey Police Service? I don't think so. And I don't think so for a number of reasons. Uh, the, the foremost, which is everybody on council understands $150 million is a drop in the bucket in the overall cost towards moving to the Surrey Police exactly. Service. There's, there's capital costs that were never discussed. There's the collective bargaining agreement between the Surrey Police and their board, which requires that they have two police officers per car. So either we're going to have to double the size of the police force, or we're going to have to have half the number of cars in the road. And I don't think that's something that the citizens of Surrey really want. The situation you are facing in Surrey, what kind of a precedent do you think is going to set for the rest of the province? Well, I think for the Solicitor General, it's going to set a precedent that not to proceed without really considering the ramifications long term. Because in this instance, we see a police force that struggled to meet every single timeline right from the beginning. We've seen a police force that has caused public safety issues in other jurisdictions because it's pulled police officers from those jurisdictions, causing them to have issues. Um, I think any other municipality is going to take a good long look at what happened here at Surrey uh, if they ever decide to, to go down this road. This is a pretty stressful situation for your constituents. What are they saying to you? They want a decision. Uh, a lot of what I'm hearing is, you know, we support ex-police force, and there's, there's strong opinions on both sides. I'm not here saying that everybody wants the RCMP, everybody wants the SPS. There's strong opinions, and sometimes it's based on all the information, and sometimes it's based on part of the information, but I think people want to move forward with this. And, and once we have the information, it is our intent, it's my intent, to move forward and make a decision as fast as possible. And if nothing changes, if nothing comes out of these reports that is going to is drastic or really changes my mind, I take the position that the decision was already made back in December of 2022 when council voted to retain the RCMP as the police of jurisdiction. But no matter what, this has been an ongoing saga in Surrey. What more information do you need to make a decision, really, in the grand scheme of things? Well, for starters, I'd like, I mean, we just received the unredacted report, which I feel should have been provided us, to us at the, at the outset. But I still want to see the decision making. Why was the SPS even uh, favored? What, when this decision to proceed to the SPS was made, what was the basis for it? And if you read the, the director of police services uh, report, uh, he actually says that this report doesn't even assess whether we should be moving forward with the SPS. So when the, when the minister comes out and says, I reject the RCMP and I recommend the Surrey Police Service, but the report doesn't even consider that. What's the basis for that recommendation? Now, is it what came out in 2018 or 2019? I'd like to see that. We have not been provided that information. So I don't know why the, why the Solicitor General is saying this, because his, the report provided to him doesn't even touch that topic. Is there any sense of a deadline being set with City Council to make a decision or, or to vote? Uh, or are you guys still sort of in limbo? Well, it's, it's not, no definite date has been set, but I think we're all cognizant of the fact that we have to move forward quickly. Uh, but we want to make sure we do it with all the information. Uh, we want to make sure that we do it with, uh, with transparency and openness. And, you know, I, 
we don't want to do this a third time. This should have been done the first time. These analysis, these discussions, this understanding should have come back in 2018 or 2019. Unfortunately, it wasn't. Here we are trying to right the ship. We're going to do it properly so that we don't do this again in four years. Okay, Harry Baines, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thank you so much. Well, it's hard to believe that there are water supply issues on the Sunshine Coast. It's such a picturesque area, specifically Gibsons. But that community's mayor is very concerned about the water supply. And Silas White joins us now. Hi, Silas. Hi. Listen, for people who don't go to the Sunshine Coast on a regular basis, can you paint a picture of what this water supply issue is like? Well, I I do want to be clear, speaking from the town of Gibsons, we have uh, a great uh, source of water, a sustainable source of water um, through our aquifer uh, that as of yet has not shown any any impacts uh, due to climate change. Um, However, most of the Sunshine Coast is reliant on uh, a a system um, that's fed from Chapman Lake, uh, north of Seashell, um, and uh, the, the water there runs down Chapman Creek and is diverted over to the, uh, the uh, treatment plant um, and then supplies uh, homes all the way from Half Moon Bay uh, south to Langdale. Um, and that, that uh, system has been very vulnerable to climate change, to drought, um, over uh, probably about eight years now. Um, particularly the last five, uh, and we've had uh, uh, states of local emergency uh, for for the first time um, in in the most recent years, and uh, it's causing a lot of uh, uh, anxiety and, and understandably fears uh, here. Uh, and uh, it's not uh, it's not the way that you know. As you said, this is a, a beautiful part of the world. Uh, uh, people people. Uh, enjoy their summers here. People enjoy visiting here during the summer, and uh, it's it's not a great feeling uh, to be going into the summer and uh, not just relaxing and enjoying it. Instead, being worried about our water. We are expecting a pretty hot summer and some drought uh, conditions. So, what's the worst case scenario that could happen? Well, it's hard to imagine it getting worse than last summer. Um, we we hit stage four water restrictions last summer. Uh, we uh, um, then and then the un- unimaginable happened, where the drought lasted so long into the fall that the lake froze over, and therefore, when it did start raining again, uh, the the precipitation couldn't collect in the lake and and basically our war- our water shortage lasted right into the into the winter and because into, the ice uh, wouldn't let it late november absorb, yeah, right yeah. exactly yeah what about so that's kind of the worst case scenario i <laughs> i hope not to be surprised by something even worse are you thinking uh, about this, restrictions this are you thinking about restrictions now as a preemptive strike uh, oh yeah, there already are. There are automatically restrictions in place uh, in May, May every year, just to address the fact that uh, people do use tend to use more water um, in the summer. Um, and uh, yeah, beyond that, we'll be watching how much how much water we have uh, behind the dam up at, at the lake 
um, to to determine when the next restrictions need to come into place. Now, yes. and it's always that I was just saying it's always a very robust restriction uh, uh, regime every summer now on the Sunshine Coast. It's uh, that's the way uh, life is. You sent a letter to Premier David Eby. What are you asking for from the province? Uh, we we are asking for at this stage uh, three three approvals of requests that have been made by by our neighbors at the Sunshine Coast Regional District. Um, and uh, one one request is that a lot of work has gone into uh, a well uh, near Gibson's actually that will uh, that will get get a significant amount of water uh, into the system this summer, and it's it's ready to go. It'll be ready to go. Um, on time and um, to all, all the engineering, hydrogeological work has been done. Um, it just needs an approval to, to get it to get it finished. And um, I think I think the province is going going along their their normal reasonable timeline, but we need it sped up. So um, you're not really ex- so you're not really experiencing roadblocks from the province. It's just not take not going as fast as you'd like. Yeah, it's it's there. There are no roadblocks from the province at this point, um, but we have we have some applications in, and uh, you know, I, in my letter I talk about the anxiety that people are feeling and and the the stress of our staff, especially having to deal with this emergency crisis, this uh, you know, crisis situation, um, and just having these approvals up front would uh, really help. Um, people's mental health here um and it, i think it, i think it's a reality with with um emergency planning in this era of climate change we have where we can't in, in a lot of cases like this it it makes little sense to wait until the emergency is already upon us that oh we have to approve this we have to approve siphons for the lake that's another one of the approvals that we're we're hoping for um, when that can be done up front, when we can see the weather right now and see that we are likely going to be in a water emergency. And it's okay. been, it's already been warm in May and, and, and it's already June and it's, it's still sunny and no sign of rain. Definitely warm, warm and very dry. Silas, thank you for your time this afternoon. Uh, despite what's happening, I, I hope you have a good weekend. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm enjoying it. Well, we have water. The Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver has put out its monthly report, and it shows that sales have increased 15.7% in May of this year compared to May of 2022. And Andrew Liss is the numbers guy. He's the one who looks at all of these statistics. He joins us now from the Real Estate Board. Hi, Andrew. Hi there. How are you doing? Not too bad, but it seems like you were caught off guard by these numbers. Uh, yeah, just to do a quick correction there, I think you said the prices were up about 15%. The, no, the I said sales. Is, sales. Is, oh, sales. Sales, oh, sales. I, I misheard you. I was like, oh boy. I'm about to no, 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 sales. Let's be clear. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. The sales are up. And that's uh, really an interesting story that we have going on because, you know, interest rates have come up quite a lot over the last year or so, and that's translated into higher mortgage rates, which is obviously affecting the ability of people to, to purchase a home through the, the cost to borrow. 
And so what we saw when the rates went up really dramatically, we saw a big decrease in, in sales, as you would expect, as, as affordability gets pinched and so on. And so uh, what's been interesting to watch, however, is as the mortgage rates have settled out a little bit and the Bank of Canada hasn't been moving around the policy rate as much, uh, we're starting to see a lot more activity start to come back into the market. So I think one way to um, kind of put an anecdote around it is perhaps there's a lot of people that have been sitting on the sidelines waiting to make a transaction, whether to buy or sell. And we're finally starting to see that come into the market. And it's translating into much higher level of sales that are only about one or two percent off of uh, our uh, our 10 year seasonal averages. So it's a it's a really interesting thing to watch. What were you projecting, though, for this month? Right. So we don't forecast on a, on a monthly basis. We do a, a, an annual forecast. And what we're, you know, right now, the way the sales are tracking, it's looking like we're probably going to come in pretty close to our annual um, forecast for sales. But on the pricing side, uh, we had predicted by year end that prices may be up about one to two percent by the year end. And at the time when we put that forecast out in January, of course, calling for price increases back in January as interest rates were rising dramatically was a a bit of a contrarian call. And uh, I think right now what's very interesting is like for six months or so now, the the prices have been rising as measured by the the housing price index. And um, that's been a really interesting story to watch as well. And I mean, the underlying factor there that keeps those prices going up is that we have more people stepping off the sidelines to enter into the market to purchase but there really is not a lot of available inventory for, for buyers to choose from. So that's what pushes up the prices. It's kind of, you know, the, the cliche, it's the supply and demand, right? What, what, what were the price increases for Vancouver? Yeah, so over the past month or so, we've seen prices of about 1%, 2% across the board in, in a lot of uh, product types and so on. It, it, it depends, it varies by region and area, but, you know, this is a, another month of steady price gains, incremental ones, you know, a couple percent here and there, not not dramatic price rises of anything like 10, 15 percent. That was those kinds of price changes were from a, a different uh, a different era that we're not, we're not quite yeah. in right now with these no with the larger uh, with these larger mortgage costs. Um, detached homes in Vancouver have seen the most significant rise in sales, right? Yeah, it looks it looks like that, and um, you know, again, it tends to vary by region and submarket and so on. So our aggregate stats are showing that, and um, yeah, it's been it's you know that's a very interesting data point in some ways, right? Because when you think about detached homes, they're obviously the most expensive homes in our region, right? And with borrowing costs being where they are, it's sort of like, well, you know, a lot of people would be putting the the puzzle pieces together and saying, well, how can people afford to buy these things when borrowing costs or what they are, how could sales be higher? How could transactions be higher? And, you know, the answer to that is kind of, it's, it, you have to dig beneath the surface of this whole, the structure of our market. And what, what is happening in reality is a lot of people who own detached homes or who are moving up to detached homes in our region come with a lot of equity to do that, which means their mortgage costs aren't tremendous and they're, they are able to actually afford it. And so, you know, it's been very interesting to see that. I think I think our, our market is one that's been supply constrained for a really long time. And so when you see those dream homes that people have been waiting for coming on the market, uh, <laughs> people are jumping at the opportunity to get in. And they might be transferring over a mortgage rate, a low mortgage rate that they already had. It could be, yes. You can port mortgages. My understanding is I believe you can port a mortgage as long as the price of the home that you're porting it to is the same or lower uh, than, than, the, um, than the price that you're paying for the new home. So 
Um, I'm, I'm not an expert on mortgages, though, so I don't want to. I don't want to get too deep into that. Uh, but a, that, that but a lot thing. of people get their start with a condo. So, what is the condo market looking like right now? Yeah, so we've seen some price increases there as well. And again, it's, it's it's everywhere across this market. It's kind of the same story. It's that inventory is low, right? So um, it's it's difficult for you know first time buyers and things to get into a market where supply is constrained. When you finally find uh, you know in a, an apartment that is in your price range, you may go to see it. And there may be quite a few other people going to see it, especially if it's in one of those more affordable price brackets. So we've seen that same kind of upward pressure on prices and things. In those, uh, in the attached and the apartment segments as well. So it's, uh, yeah, it's challenging. It's always been challenging times in our market, but it's been particularly challenging for a lot of people over the past ten years. I would say. And the Bank of Canada is likely going to have another hike this month. What kind of an impact will that have on the real estate market here? Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the consensus from a lot of people is about a quarter point hike, which means a zero point two five percent change, which is, uh, you know not substantial really it's not like it's not like the rates would go up a full percentage or something like that so it's unlikely that it'll have a very large impact and uh, you know honestly it remains to be seen whether they in fact do hike uh you know I, i i'm a bit on the fence between whether they will or not because if you look at the kind of economic data a lot of things are actually unfolding as they would hope if they wanted to achieve what they call a soft landing where they raise interest rates and do not tip the economy into a full on recession. And, you know, right now things look kind of like they're pulling that off. And if they raise the rates a little bit more, it might tip the probabilities in the, in, in the scales of going towards the recession route. So we'll see what happens with them. They're, they're probably going to weigh this one cautiously. Can you imagine if we didn't have the threat of a recession and we didn't have these mortgage rates, what the market would be like? Yeah, that's a, you must have read the quote in the statement that I put out. You know, I was saying it, it. our market right now, there's so many parallels to what we saw in 2021 and 2015, 2016, where we had really low inventory levels, a lot of buyers wanting to buy. But the difference back then is that mortgage rates were a lot higher, right? So that, or sorry, they were a lot lower. And so that drove prices higher a lot quickly, a lot more quickly. Uh, today, you know, we have mortgage rates being where they are, which is considerably higher than they were in those periods. And I think that's what's constraining prices from growing really, really quickly. But and so, yeah, it's it's a really it's really something to watch. And it's been very fascinating seeing the buyers and sellers come back to the market after a sort of slower start to the year. For a long time, we heard, oh, it's a red hot marking, uh, red hot market. Is it red? Is it hot? What is it now? Like, how do you describe it now? Yeah, I would say, you know, I'd say it's ver- it's, a, it's more like a it's warm. It's warm is what I would say. You know, it's not quite super, super hot. Uh, not like we've seen in those really, really heated periods of 2021 and 2016, 2015. But it, it is tilting towards the seller's side. When we look at the sales to active listings ratio, which is a measure of you know supply and demand, if you will, in the market, that ratio tells us when, when it's high, it means that there's a lot more people who want to purchase than there is homes available to purchase. And that's exactly the situation we find ourselves in now. And those ratios are all tilting into what we call as seller's territory, meaning that the sellers can set the pricing as opposed to buyers sort of setting the pricing. And, and uh, yeah, we've been watching those ratios tick up month over month, but they aren't quite where they were back in, you know, 2021, 22 and 2015, 2016. There's still still a ways to go, but it's 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 getting hotter just as the weather is. <laughs> all right. Andrew Liz, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us. Oh, you're more than welcome. Anytime. 
Air Canada has been having some technical problems this week. We're looking at about 500 flights that were cancelled yesterday, possibly another 80 or so today. This affects all the major airports across Canada. Uh, Air Canada says it was a breakdown with its flight communication system. This is a system that's needed to communicate with aircraft and monitor operations. But summer travel is just about to pick up, and that is why we are going to talk to Gabor Lukic, who's an advocate for passenger rights. Hey, Gabor, how are you? Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Is this an indication of another summer of travel troubles? Well, um, I don't think the situation is improving uh, as fast as we are hoping. Uh, I'm, I'm not holding my breath about Canadian uh, airlines. <laughs> and uh, generally, I'm concerned because the airlines keep getting uh, the signals from um, the government that they can get away with a lot. They continue to, to not put enough effort into ensuring that passengers have a smooth travel experience. At the same time, what is happening now with Air Canada, what happened now, I would be hesitant to draw um, some far-reaching conclusions from this. It may, it may uh, well be just a one-off situation. What I'm finding more troubling is how Air Canada reacts to it and how they are not owning up that, yes, this is actually clearly within the airline's control. It's their airplanes, their equipment, their problems. And I'm also troubled that they are uh, trying to, uh, it sounds like they're trying to shortchange people when it comes to compensation. That's not right either. So those are the concerns I have. Um, situations like this, you know, stuff happen. Uh, it's more a question of how, what happens when stuff happens. How do you react to it? That uh, concern me. This would be considered a safety issue. Am I am I right though? I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's it's uh, far from clear that it is a safety issue. Uh, but it I'm seems to be what Air Canada always falls back on. You know, I, I've I've heard it. What I heard in it, and, and it's not clear. You know, we we haven't get a proper technical briefing on what happened. But one at least from one source told me that they heard that it was actually some problem with the communication between the airplane and the ADC, and that really doesn't sound credible to me because having a radio. I mean, you, even every Cessna, every small plane, you have a radio that you communicate with ADC. So it's more complex than that. And if Air Canada has problems with its own communication system, which I believe what happened is communication between the aircraft and the headquarters, not, not ATC. <clears throat> it's not clear, just based on what we know so far, how, sa- how safety critical this was, or whether it's more a question of collecting data uh, as a way of monitoring the aircraft for longer-term statistical uh, purposes. What recourse do travelers have in a situation like this? In the British Columbia, you have a, a civil resolution tribunal that is quite... Um, fair and open-minded and knowledgeable and growing expertise in air passenger rights areas. They have issued some great rulings um, over the past 12 months, uh, especially this month, a couple of really good ones. Uh, and uh, so first, I mean, even, even if it's a safety issue, it's still within the airline's control. So the airline has to provide meals and accommodation and rebooking on flights of other airlines if they cannot transport a passenger within nine hours. If Air Canada falls short of that requirement, then the passenger can sue um, Air Canada in civil resolutions tribunal and make Air Canada pay for it. Um, if uh, um, the, the other aspect is it's far from clear that it's a safety issue, so I would challenge that as well. And uh, I would seek a ruling from the CRT and BC um, what, is actually, what, what they actually think about it. I would certainly avoid the Canadian Transportation Agency, though, 
they are known to be cozy with the airlines and they have a huge backlog and they are lacking objectivity and impartiality. You just took the question out of my mouth. I, those those complaints have piled up and it seems like nothing ever ever happens with those. Well, this are this really you know we wonder whether they are actually failures by design and whether the government really wants things to be this way. Uh, now, now of course, the, the, some of the bad publicity is, is really hurting the government. So they are trying to at least pretend to fix the situation. But unfortunately, the changes the government put forward in the budget bill, the kind of omnibus bill, uh, are actually making things worse. They they erode further passenger rights um, in in perpetuating the loopholes. Uh, in some way, shifting them elsewhere, and they they don't seem to be willing or able to to actually just copy and implement the European Union's gold standard. What what I'm seeing is, is likely to happen is they are trying to move now the loophole from the main legislation, the Canada Transportation Act, into uh, into a uh, delegated legislation, the regulations there, the the Canada uh, the uh, air passenger protection regulations. So um, that's that's just. You know, shifting the blame, shifting, shifting where the mischief is happening. It doesn't really resolve the problem, and that's a very, very significant concern. Now, of course, we'll keep monitoring it, but as I understand, the this, the loopholes that currently exist are going to be one way or another incorporated in the regulations, and uh, that's not good. You know, for a long time, airlines like Air Canada were using COVID as an excuse that they weren't, you know, up up to speed. That excuse doesn't doesn't count anymore. I mean, this isn't the first time Air Canada has technical issues. There's been issues with lost luggage, still issues with lost luggage. Uh, this is bad PR for them, don't you think? Well, uh, the good news is, and especially for BC residents, that it sounds like um, the Civil Resolution Tribunal has had enough of um, this type of uh, perpetual reference to um, the to, to COVID issues as as a, as a safety issue. Now, this is what I mentioned that that some of these great decisions were were, were coming out because I I'm just if I have pulled it up. I find it insufficient for Canada to simply assert that it was outside its control or due to safety concerns because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, this is right from the BC Civil uh, Resolution Tribunal decision released uh, on the 25th of May by the Vice Chair Shelley Lopez. So it seems that at least in BC. Um, the, they are starting to realize that, that the airlines are pulling the wool through through the public and through the judiciary, through the administration of justice's eyes. And this uh, constant reference to the COVID is really bogus. So um, I would expect that that the passengers may find a an open mind and attentive listening uh, adjudicators if they take the matter to the civil resolution tribunal in BC. Do you find personally that you get a lot of complaints from from average travelers in Canada, and a lot? We are absolutely flooded, and and, and this is maybe a good time that I publicly apologize for not being able to <laughs> respond to everybody. For you know, even even in our Facebook group, quite often um, we just the, 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 we, I just don't I'm not able to get through all the posts, all the requests for help, all the complaints that were posted just that day, and the next day there are even more. And it, and it is just it, it, it's it's really it's really a, a, a kind of endless stream of problems of of complaints, uh, and 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 many of them are very very uh, um, you know meaningful and 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 they and they make sense. So so we are not we are not talking about about uh, you know not case. We're talking about actually cases that I'm reading them and I'm saying oh my god I wish I could help them all, 
and and it's it's very very challenging to 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 for passengers very challenging for us because we as volunteers have only so much time to to help um and and what what i'm finding quite aggravating is that in some ways we are doing the work there are passenger rides that in, in a normal society uh, the government should be doing this types of issues these types of matters should be dealt with by um, government uh, public servants uh, who have also the power to, to offer a fix not not just provide guidance which is what we do we refer people to help to civil resolution tribunal smoke claims court or provincial court in other places um and and uh, that's the best that we can do, provide information. Well, listen, we appreciate the time you've taken to speak to us, and we'll let you get back to the complaints that you have to deal with. Gabor Lukic is a passenger rights advocate. Thanks, Gabor. Thank you very much for having me. two days of meetings about the situation at Surrey Memorial Hospital with lots of doctors and staff, even patients speaking about speaking out about the conditions there. The president of Fraser Health says it has still not reached a crisis level. Now, while making an announcement on a different matter, Health Minister Adrian Dix was asked about the problems at Surrey Memorial and Global BC's ledge reporter Richard Zisman was there. Hi, Richard. Hey, Robin. How did Adrian respond today? I mean, there's so many doctors who are coming forward in so many different groups. What were what were his thoughts today on Surrey? Yeah, so he's been asked about this a number of times this week, and so has Dr. Victoria Lee, and there are various different components here. One thing that stood out to me and is new information is that Minister Dix, alongside Dr. Lee, alongside Board Chair Jim Sinclair, uh, will be in meetings all day on Monday, all day on Tuesday with leadership at Surrey Memorial and frontline doctors to have a conversation around what needs to be fixed. We know one of the big concerns that continues to be raised is around hospitalists. They are currently uh, in negotiations with the province around a new deal. Uh, they are, in essence, family doctors who work in the hospital setting. Uh, Minister Dick says it is a component in terms of what the issues are at Surrey Memorial, but far from the only concern. And so that will be part of the meeting. Uh, as well included in that is the overall issue of wait times. We have heard emergency room doctors across the country warn now about increased wait times at emergency, and we're already seeing a boiling point at Surrey Memorial, and it's only going to get worse this summer, Robin, in part due to the fact we're seeing these staffing shortages, we're seeing burnout, and now on top of that, we're going to start seeing vacations, uh, doctors going away, and all of that is compounding uh, this problem. So the minister says they are working on this. These meetings are important. On the issue of leadership, which keeps coming up, we know that leadership is a blunt tool, uh, that it only solves in essence, a small part of the problem, but it sends a very large message uh, to the public around a need for change. Uh, Dix has uh, multiple times this week uh, shot down any idea that there's going to be a change of leadership at Fraser Health, especially when it comes to Dr. Victoria Lee. He rhymed off all of these things that uh, Surrey, uh, that Fraser Health has done uh, since the beginning of the pandemic and has um, applauded her for her leadership. So he, there will he, be no leadership change uh, at Fraser Health. He really defended her leadership given um, the fact that, not the fact, we don't even know, these are just accusations, that um, the administration is telling doctors not to reveal the problems. And so far there has been no call for her resignation and Adrian Dix defended her today. 
Yeah, and, and it continues to be this idea that she is the one that is leading Fraser Health through these challenging times and has done so. And, and the numbers that the minister keeps bringing up is that they are breaking records in terms of surgeries, uh, that they have actually dropped down the wait times for diagnostic testing, uh, and that these issues in the emergency room are far more than just an issue with staffing and emergency. It's about a network of care and that there are challenges in all level of the uh, primary care network and the emergency care network. And that is ultimately leading to the challenges and not one person can solve those problems. And so there's a, there's a strong defense, Robin, as you alluded to, to her leadership. Just to rewind uh, something you talked about earlier about hospitalists um, having to negotiate a new contract. Is this potentially something they're using as negotiating power or leveraging mm-hmm. this? They sure are, Robin. Mm-hmm. This is a big part of all of this. And and we know that, and Minister Dix has said that publicly, that uh, this is no doubt part of the tool to, you know, get a better contract for hospitalists, uh, send a message to the public that a system is in danger. But we also know that this is much larger than one issue. Doctors, um, at a huge level, you mentioned it at one point, that there was a time at the end of April where doctors were putting up signage at Surrey Memorial to let their patients know that uh, there were going to be significant delays and they are concerned about service delivery. We also saw doctors writing uh, in their script notes, uh, their their patient files, that uh, their response was limited due to shortages. So, yes, it is a negotiating tactic around hospitalists, but... We are also experiencing something at Surrey Memorial, as doctors describe it, those on the front lines, that is, that is worse than, than what we've seen before. Okay, let's switch gears and talk about our other favourite topic, and that's the Surrey policing <laughs> issue. Um, Mike Farnworth sent that letter to, to Surrey City Council, and they're all up in arms about it. They feel that they're being pressured, they're feeling like they're being threatened because they're supposed to set a date and vote and make a decision. Uh, what, what's what's uh, happening in the, the political circles in Victoria when it comes to this issue? What stands out to me on this, Robin, and I spoke to uh, Minister Farnworth yesterday for a story we did on the News Hour. I asked him about six different times, why not just impose a deadline? You're not telling Surrey what to do here. Just give them an end date. And they are reluctant to do that. Uh, when I asked Mayor Locke about a deadline, she said they need time to review this. They're still bickering over this NDA. Now Locke is saying that she won't even tell the public if she signed the NDA or if she hasn't. It's none of their business, but raises those concerns about signing a non-disclosure agreement because she doesn't believe it allows for the maximum amount of public accountability. Uh, everybody in Surrey just wants to have this thing done. Mayor Locke says that they are going to solve this as quickly as possible. Once they, uh, her city staff can look at this full document and it comes to council, they can make a decision. But it doesn't look like there's any wiggle room here, and I'm not sure where this ends. That even if there was a deadline imposed, Mayor Locke is going to push as hard as she can with those that she has uh, support with on council for the RCMP. The problem is, whatever they may pass in council likely will not pass uh, the requirement from the province around policing. And then at that point, it's unclear what uh, Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth is going to do, because ultimately he may need to impose something upon the city, which is going to be highly problematic. But he dangled the carrot of $150 million to deal yep. with it. 
Yeah, and we've seen this money before, but now it's on paper. And that's something that the mayor had asked for. That number may go up. Uh, it may be a necessity for that number to go up. But yeah, that number is now on paper, and it will not be there if they stay with the RCMP. This is just money to help offset those costs of transition to the Surrey Police Service. You know, we really kind of don't want this situation to go away, Richard. What else would we talk (laughs) about? about I love bringing you on the show so we can talk about this. Um, I really do appreciate your time, though. Yeah, have a great rest of the show. Yeah, have a great weekend. Talk to you soon. We're going to switch things up and we're going to talk about what's coming up in the show. Nicole Sullivan is going to talk about uh, fundraising with the MS Society. Um, I hope that she's on the line right now. Um, Nicole, are you there? Hi, I am. Hello. Thanks for joining us today. I know that uh, we're talking about MS. Um, We're looking at about 90,000 Canadians who are affected by MS, but you are doing what you can to raise money for for this disease. Can you tell us what's going on next weekend? Ooh, absolutely. I would love to. I love chatting about our MS bike program, specifically in Fraser Valley. So this upcoming weekend on June 10th and 11th, we are looking forward to hosting just about 100 participants and over 50 volunteers at the Fraser Valley MS bike. You can ride anywhere from 30 kilometers up to 150 kilometers over the weekend with rest stops and full support along the way, all raising important funds for MS. This is a cycling fundraiser over two days. That is correct. So are you still looking for participants? We, yes, we absolutely are. You can register all the way up until the weekend itself. Um, Right now we're sitting at 90 participants. Our goal is to hit that 100 um, and we're still fundraising. So we're just about $74,000 raised and our goal is 125,000. And this is one of how many events happening across the country? I know there are different provinces taking part. That's right. We have 12 locations taking place from June through September with Fraser Valley actually being our kickoff ride of the season. So it's going to be our first MS bike happening across Canada. Why do we have one of the highest rates of MS in the world? You know, that is a great question. It's actually um, here in Canada as well. MS is actually the most common neurological disease affecting young, young adults in Canada. And With those 90,000 Canadians living with MS across the country and, you know, approximately 12 Canadians being diagnosed every single day, MS is really Canada's disease. And it's it's, um, something that our researchers are looking into, everything from genetic and environmental factors. That's something that MS Canada is contributing to our funding through our events and where we raise money through um, events like MS Bike. It affects every patient differently, am I correct? And it's, it's, it's unpredictable. That is absolutely right. So it, MS is unpredictable and symptoms vary across different people. So everything um, in terms of the symptoms can include numbness and tingling, vision problems, impaired speech, loss of balance or coordination, fatigue, loss of mobility. It's really a complex disease that affects each of those 90,000 Canadians across the country differently. And sometimes it's episodic, so there may be times when you feel okay and then it can be really bad. That is exactly right. So um, depending on the individual, um, they can experience different relapses that can be incredibly debilitating or difficult to navigate. And it's really important for us um, to be there as an organization in in order to ensure that we um, both provide the 
uh, funding for those individuals, but also a variety of supports and services such as our MS Knowledge Network or peer-to-peer support groups um, and more to ensure that we're there for those folks who um, navigate the complexities and difficulties of the disease. And once you are diagnosed with MS, does it only get worse? It uh, really depends on the individual. So there's different forms of MS um, between relapse remitting and progressive MS, and everyone's journey is different. Um, and again, that contributes to the complexity of the disease and, and why our researchers work so hard to um, figure out what the causes and, um, you know, what a potential cure could be for MS because it presents differently um, from each individual to each individual. So Sometimes someone can experience a significant relapse and then through various, um, you know, mitigating factors, they can live a very, you know, symptom-free life and others experience that very differently. It is really challenging because it is different from individual to individual. So there's a great opportunity for people who want to help help find uh, research and and, uh, advocate for patients with MS with your fundraiser next weekend. Two days it's a cycling fundraiser. Um, once again, uh, you have you've have, I have an opportunity to plug it. Go for it. Ooh, I would love to. So, MS Bike Fraser Valley. We're actually celebrating our 25th anniversary this year. So, we have been in the community for over two decades. The event itself, you head out from Thunderbird Show Park. You experience beautiful vineyards, craft breweries, breathtaking scenery uh, on quiet roads just outside of the town of Langley. And we are fully supporting our cyclists every step of the way, or I should say every pedal stroke of their journey. We offer transportation and roadside and first aid support. So, you know, you don't need to be someone who's a really strong cyclist to um, attend our event. We also host exciting festivities on the event days, such as games, live music, and more. It's really just a fantastic opportunity to come together as a community and raise important dollars for MS. You say you don't have to be a big cyclist? You do not. Oh my goodness! I've it's seen two days. As as, Come on. I know. I <laughs> and I it's the Fraser Valley, it, isn't it, Hilly? It, <laughs> it seems like it would be, but I will say I've seen I've seen individuals as young as twelve do it. The oldest person that I know who has done MS bike is eighty-seven. So I think that, and we also have folks living with MS. They you can you can actually ride on an e-bike if that's something that you're more comfortable with, but. I would not be daunted by those kilometers because we have rest stops regularly throughout the route. Every 10 to 20 kilometers is a spot for you to stop and eat and drink and rest, and then you keep going. And throughout the way, if, you know, maybe uh, the ride is getting a little long, we have additional support that can get you back to the finish line. There's just really a great opportunity to be able to get out there Um, you know, support MS while doing a challenge for yourself, but also customize that challenge. So you're not a strong cyclist. You can stick to the 30K over two days. Um, But if you are a strong, strong cyclist, you can hit the 150 over the two days. So there is a really wide opportunity to get involved. And we try our best to meet our community where they're at in terms of, um, yeah, their strengths in cycling. So really no excuses in order to get involved with MS bike. Are there any personal stories that you want to highlight with this with this cause? Oh my goodness. I, you know, have been involved with MS Canada since 2014 and I've had the absolute privilege to connect with folks um, all across the country in my role with MS Bike. And I have to say that, you know, what strikes me the most is that one, everybody's story is different, but two, 
that connection and that deep, um, you know, desire to to be part of a larger community is felt equally across the country. And, you know, last year we had an individual, her name is Faith. She was diagnosed when she was in her teenage years. I believe she was 14 or 15. And that's a pretty young diagnosis and a pretty, you know, life-altering diagnosis to receive, especially at such a young age. And she spoke at our event and was so incredibly impactful in terms of, you know, being a young adult. Uh, she's 20 years old last year and delivered a speech that left not a dry eye in the house. And, you know, it's one of those things that it's not uncommon to hear such an impactful story. There are, you know, 90,000 of them across the country and having the opportunity to, um, you know, ride an MS bike. It's just, it's more than, you know, cycling those those kilometers and going up and down those hills. It's really about supporting people like Faith and the larger community and and standing behind them or beside them, you know, arm in arm with them um, as you as they navigate their diagnosis and this really complex disease. And you know, raising these these dollars um, with Fraser Valley, our goal is one hundred twenty five thousand. But for the entire country, our goal is actually over four million dollars this year alone. So. You know, however individuals can get involved, it really, really makes an impact on those folks that are living with MS across the country. Well, we we hope we certainly hope that you meet meet your goal and even surpass it. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us, Nicole. I know it was an abrupt start because we we're having some technical problems, but we appreciate taking the time. Oh, thank you so much for having me, and really appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Well, we're going to talk about the Canadian Wildlife Federation, and it's got a really interesting program called Wild Outside. It's a program that's encouraging young people from age 15 to 18 to take part in the name of conservation. It's a public service opportunity, and it is funded by the federal government. And joining us now to talk about this is Mitchell Sattler with the Canadian Wildlife Federation. Hi, Mitchell. Hi, how are you doing? Not too bad. Tell us about the program and what you do. Yeah, for sure. So Wild Outside, it's a free program uh, for youth aged 15 to 18. Uh, and it was actually developed by the Canadian Wildlife Federation. And it's also partially funded by the federal government's Canada Service Corps program. Um, but really, our main goal is to get youth outside and involved in the world of wildlife conservation. So um, yeah, it's a really, really cool opportunity. And we're able to do this through events that we actually run year round that are a mix of Fun, uh, fun service projects and fun outdoor adventures. Yeah, so, you've got about. Example, yeah, I was going to ask you, what are the examples of some of these community projects you work on? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, for example, actually, just tomorrow, um, we're going to be planting a garden uh, with the goal of creating habitat and food for local pollinators, like bees and butterflies. Mm-hmm. So that's a really fun service project we'll be doing tomorrow. Um, and then, actually, later this month, we're going sea kayaking. So you can see there's a nice mix between the adventure and service aspect of the program. I saw that you repurpose plastic waste. How does that work? Yeah, so there's uh, a lot of ways that you can do that. In terms of uh, our program here in Vancouver, um, we've kind of sometimes you can create art projects or different things like that, um, but it's not necessarily a project that we've done here in Vancouver, but actually Wild Outside is run in 26 cities across the country. So there's a lot of different projects that happen all over the place. And I see that you install bat houses. Is that safe? Yeah, so, yeah but no, bats are pretty cool creatures. Um, definitely, um, I think, misunderstood creatures, but they're pretty amazing. Uh, that's something that we've worked on in the past before, where we've gotten the youth to paint bat boxes, um, which were then put up in different parks um, to create habitat and space for bats. And what about, how many people do you find participate in this? How many young people join? 
Yeah, so actually across the country, um, right now we have over 1,600 participants um, in all the different cities. So it's a, a, quite a few people. Um, but we're, yeah, we're definitely always looking for more people to join. Um, so you can always look at our website at wildoutside.ca if you want to apply for the program. We're always looking for, for young people, uh, new young people to join the program. What are the benefits for, for these young people besides contributing to helping the environment? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. There's a lot of different benefits. Um, there's a lot of different skills um, that I think our youth are able to take from the events, um, whether that's learning from, directly from professionals in the conservation field um, or outdoor recreation skills, leadership skills. Um, there's all these different amazing skills that people can take and put on their resume as well, too, um, which is very helpful. And we're always happy to provide references um, and help our, our youth out as they move on from the program as well, too. And what about, you know, getting some leadership skills? Is, that, is, this, is this a way to get some? For sure, yeah. We always like to encourage our youth to um, take on leadership roles within the program, but also we do our best to assist them um, in taking leadership roles in their communities. If they have a project that they're super passionate about, um, that's related to conservation. We're always happy, happy to uh, yeah, help them with resources and advice uh, when they want to work on those projects. Are you seeing more and more kids sign up? Are they enthusiastic about it? Yes, yeah, we have lots of people sign up for sure. Um, and our goal when people sign up too is to get to 120 hours of service. But uh, we've been seeing that our youth, they get to that and they far surpass it. Um, so there's definitely a lot of enthusiasm and people excited to help out our environment and spend time outside. I think especially coming out of the pandemic, too, um, we spend a lot of time inside. So this is a good opportunity to spend more time outside. That's the question. That was my next question. Did you find that you you saw more people signing up after the pandemic? Yes, for sure. For sure. I think people are looking for those opportunities um, to, yeah, engage outside. These are volunteer hours that you can put on your resume. It looks good for university exactly. applications, etc., right? Yeah, you got it for sure. Okay, Mitchell, thank you so much for taking the time this afternoon. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. Bye. Well, it is the weekend. Thinking about a new place to try out, we're going to bring in Vancouver Foodster Richard Wolak to talk about his new picks. Hi, Richard. Hi, Robin. Listen, I, I see that you had a Moroccan restaurant on your list. Tell us about that. Yeah, so it's a Tajin Moroccan Arabic restaurant in uh, Gastown. It actually took over from Motaka Moroccan restaurant. It actually has the same owner. But what they've done is they've just pared down the menu. So if you've got some favorites from there before, you probably still have those favorites there. And then they've added some more Arabic dishes. So something like full madama. So I had actually not heard of that before. But it's a hearty Arabic dish. I, I tasted it with stewed fava beans, spinach. It's got some lemon wedges on the side of it. So they're trying to do a few other items that they haven't done previously. And they have another location in Yaletown. But they're running a kind of a different menu there than they are over here. And um, they're going to be adding things to it. They're going to be adding some uh, Moroccan desserts very soon. Uh, so a great spot to go if you're looking for some Moroccan food. We don't have that many restaurants in Vancouver with Moroccan, like no. your food, pretty much. That's why that's, <laughs> so, uh, what was the price point on it? Well, it's it's fairly affordable. I mean, of course, like everything is going up. So everybody yeah. knows that now that like pretty much across the board, everything is going up. But I think, you know, I think dishes were still quite good, like in the late 20s and 30s for mains, which is really good. And, you know, it's a full portion. It's very, very large serving. So I think if, uh, if you're looking for soups and that kind of thing, I think they were like, eight to twelve dollars that kind of thing so i mean it's pretty average to what's going on around the city with all the different other restaurants i like the name of this next restaurant missing chopsticks 
So this is a fun one. So this is one that, you know, I, was thought, I thought, okay, it's going to be a Chinese restaurant. It just doesn't have chopsticks. And it's not like that at all. So the fun play here is, of course, missing chopsticks. It's out in Richmond. It's a hidden gem. You will not find it like anywhere near any of the other restaurants that you know about. They've uh, purposely gone to East Richmond in Industrial Park, hidden away destination restaurant. It's modern French with an Asian twist. And it's phenomenal. They've been open about a month and a half now. I had a spot pond tasting menu there the other night. They're only about they're only doing tasting menus. That's all they do. And they have basically one tasting menu roughly every three to four weeks. And then it rotates. And then it's just nighttime only. And um, it's just it's just incredible. So the spot pond. I mean, it's on till they've got till about the 16th of June for spot pond. So if you want to do that, you got to make a reservation like right away. Uh, Chef Edward and his high school friend Lewis are partners. They got together after many years from back in high school and have created this restaurant. Um, they kind of took them four years because the pandemic was in the way. Of course. And, uh, of course. And, uh, but they were able to achieve it, and it's just done a, a great, great job. So, of course, missing chopsticks means there are no chopsticks <laughs> in this dinner service. I love it. Of course. Yeah, I love it too. And I think they're going to they'll do quite well. I think it's um, people are catching on. They're understanding where it's coming from. And, Seeing this kind of food also in Vancouver, we haven't really had something like this before. Mm-hmm. Of course, you've got fine dining downtown, but this takes it up a, up a notch. And this, the service, the dishes were phenomenal. Chef Edward has worked for Michelin star restaurants in Hong Kong. Oh, wow. And, uh, I'm writing really this down. Knows, yeah, he really knows what he's doing. So I think uh, people are in for a treat. And just kind of watch, you know, if you go to their reservations, you can see what the next uh, tasting menu is going to be, and you can go through it. I think each tasting menu is about six courses. Okay, wow. Next, Mum's Rassoy and Bar, am I saying that right? Yes, you are. So it is a new Indian restaurant in the South Granville neighborhood. Uh, It took over Bombay Kitchen, which previously was Bidja's restaurant. So still some changes there. Uh, Chef Manish Basra, he actually was at Bombay Kitchen before. There's a bit of a kind of overlap going on, and there's also a lot of Indian restaurant changes happening in the city right now there's been lots of a lot of movement in that sector uh, but they've done a great job there they've brightened it up and uh, one thing there is they can you can you can have the dishes as they are but I challenged the chef and I said I want you to make me the Indian dishes without ghee and without cream I want a very healthy meal and he says I can do that and he did that for me and he told me that back in India that's how he cooks he cooks without ghee and cream it's only in North America where they add ghee and cream and everything else into all the dishes. Yeah, that's uh, true. <laughs> so, so he did. Yeah, so he did actually mention that um, if there are people who are vegan, or say you have a party and you're somebody coming from out of town and you want vegan, you can call the restaurant and say, "I want them cook. I want to cook vegan," and he will do that for you. So that's something to know because not every restaurant will do that, and he has training for that, and he can do it. So uh, just a few different dishes that I had that I loved. There was the kasundi fish tikka. Uh, the chicken tikka, damakani, so all those kinds of dishes that we'd normally have, because damakani usually has cream in it, and it can be quite heavy for people, but he did it without it, and he did a great job. So that's a that's a good spot to go if you're looking for that kind of cuisine. And, and speaking of Bombay Kitchen, it's now moved to Denman Street, or is it the second okay. location so of the Commercial story. Drive? So that's a bit of a story. So they have the one on Commercial Drive, which everybody knows about. Then they have this one on South Granville, uh, but then the South Granville one got sold and Mums Rassoy came in. And then now Bombay Kitchen has just opened up on Denman Street, uh, right in the heart of English Bay. So that's what I'm saying. Like, there's a lot of movement going on. And it, it's kind of like other restaurants adding second locations or adding third locations. 
and they're kind of bumping, na- jumping around neighborhoods right now. But Bombay Kitchen has always done a great job. I think they've they've also got Bombay Masala up on 10th Avenue and Point Grey, and they've got all the favorites there. And then Chef Andy's also created some new dishes just for that location and just trying to change it up a little bit. I think the West End is a bit different than all the other areas around the city when it comes to Indian food. There are also several Indian restaurants in that neighborhood now, so you got to stand out. You can't kind of mm-hmm. do the same thing because the only way to get people in is to do something different. Uh, so that's what these guys are trying to do, and um, I think they've done a great job with it. Well, Bombay um, Kitchen then, has been one of my go-tos for Indian, so that's, oh, that's good to know, okay. yeah. Which location do you usually get it from? Well, that's either the 10th location, but I was so, going to the South Granville one. But I guess it's okay. gone now. I didn't know that. It's gone now. <laughs> yeah, thanks <laughs> for that. <laughs> yeah, well, the one on tenth is a little bit different. Bombay Masala, but they, it's a really good restaurant. I really like for it for sure. But yeah, you know, they are just moving around a little bit. I just think I think it, it has to do with a few factors in the city right now. The rent, of course, is a, is a playful playing part of it, and ingredient prices rising. Uh, so they kind of have to go in the right spot where it where it works. And it seems like for these for these folks, it, it does work. Um, and then another restaurant I want to mention is out in Richmond. So, um, so Richmond is actually seeing a lot of new restaurants right now, but it's very hard to keep up with it because nobody is really focusing on Richmond. So like Daily Hive and all these other publications are doing their best to kind of cover the city. But really what's going on in Richmond right now is there are openings and closings daily. So it's, it's really hard to keep up unless you find something really interesting. And I think Little Carp is another one of those ones, similar to, to Missing Chopsticks, but because they are doing – tasting menus they're doing a little bit of a la carte as well they also have a full-on cocktail bar there they're situated in this alexander road which has like multiple asian restaurants on that street and they're not really asian so it is an asian owned but it's nordic cuisine with an asian twist so that's not something we have had here before is nordic cuisine so nordic cuisine is kind of in a, doing a lot of seafood um, they're kind of ideas and, and themes of what you find in, Nor- in Denmark, perhaps, in Sweden, that kind of thing. Um, but they're doing a great job with it. I know right now they're just closing for a few days to launch their summer menu. Uh, the place is absolutely beautiful. You will find carp, so the name Little Carp. Uh, they've de- designed this dining room with these beautiful carp, nine carps hanging with light fixtures in them. And then it, there's a there's a story that goes not, with with uh, carp nine dragons on the other side of the wall. So there's apparently a whole kind of a, a, a fairy tale about it. Well, they've designed it in this restaurant, so you've got the nine carp hanging. And then when you go to the other room, which is a private dining room, you've got the nine dragons painted on the wall. So really interesting. <laughs> I Richard, I, I, I love all the choices that you presented, but we're now running out of time. So thank you so much. I, I'm, I'm writing them down and writing notes <laughs> as we go along. This is great. Thanks so much. Have you're a great welcome. weekend. You're welcome. Okay, thank Richard, you.